The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Frank Holland, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show is live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We begin with one and done. Stocks coming off their worst day in months, but futures, they are pointing to a possible bounce back. And a mega media deal in the works. Reports swirling around a meeting between two major industry executives this week to form a company to rival Disney and Netflix. Also, no luck for Apple, losing its final challenge to an Apple Watch Ultra 2 and Series 9 sales ban. Plus, we turn the page in your stock playbook with a look at a really wild year for banks and what's ahead for 2024. And then later in the show, we're going to get you ready for Nike results after the bell as one longtime investor lays out the bull case for the stock. It's Thursday, December the 21st, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I am Frank Hollins. Get you ready to start the day. As always, we kick off the hour with a check on U.S. stock futures. And take a look at this right here. What a difference a day makes. You see futures in the green across the board at this hour. Remember, it's early. It looks like that would open up about 175 points higher. Big gains for the Nasdaq as well. We're going to talk a lot more about this. Of course, this action we're seeing in futures after a pretty rough day for the major averages. They saw the Dow and the Nasdaq snap their nine-session win streaks for their worst day since October. Worse for the broader S&P, closing down nearly 1.5% for its worst day since late September. Sharp declines in the small caps and the transports as well. You see the Russell down almost 2%. Dow Transports really getting hit hard by those FedEx results down two and a third of a percent. So in the bond market, a sell-off on Wall Street really doing nothing to help Treasury yields. Take a look right now. Well, of course, we always look at the benchmark 10-year. Um, right now, that yield at 3879 um, trading at its lowest level since all the way back in July. And, of course, we want to look at the energy market as well, oil in particular, WTI, the U.S. benchmark. Right now at 74.42 a barrel, up a quarter of a percent. Brent crude at 79.90, a similar story right there. Uh, Arbob gas, that's the wholesale price for gasoline, gives you kind of an indication of gas prices down a half a percent. All right, that's your morning money setup. Let's see if Asia and Europe are following our lead higher in the pre-market. Jemana Bersetti's in our London newsroom with much more on the early trade. Good morning, Jemana. Good morning, Frank. Well, as you can see behind me, it's another mixed session for Asia. But Nikkei taking their cue from Wall Street yesterday, that a dampener, that close, putting a bit of a dampener on where the Nikkei ended the session, down 1.6%. A lot of focus on autos there with Toyota down 4% after recalling 1 million of its cars in the U.S. So that was uh, one of the drags on the Nikkei 225. But Hang Seng, you can see marginally green, so up about four basis points. The Shanghai Composite Seeing somewhat of a rebound there today, up six-tenths of a percent, led by names in the energy, artificial intelligence, and the tourism sector. Also on speculation that some commercial banks may be looking to cut rates on time deposits as soon as tomorrow. Switching over to Europe, and the mood is a lot more negative. You can see for the most part, well, every single one of these indices is trading now in the red, similar to what we had 
in U.S. price action. The FTSE 100 down three-tenths of a percent. Marginal outperformance in basic resources this morning, so commodities seeing a bit of a balance. But we are seeing luxury come under selling pressure. So Burberry right at the bottom of FTSE 100. Cacarante as well seeing luxury come off there. It tends to be very luxury heavy. But of course... Also, watching out for the moves in autos here, it is not a pretty day for many of the automakers today in Europe. Renault is at the bottom of the Cacarante, and then Zetra Dax as well, also down about half a percent. So uh, even though we are seeing a little bit of green, and even though the stock 600 is sitting at a 23-month high, today is a day of red for these European markets, Frank. All right, Germana, thank you very much. Our Germana Brissetti live in our London newsroom. Turning back to the U.S. and Wall Street's late-session sell-off, they saw the S&P Post its biggest decline in nearly three months, following one of the fastest melt-ups for the index in more than three years. In fact, just 19 stocks in the S&P were higher on the day. That's under 4% of the broader index. It's the lowest number since March, and that was all the way back at the height of the banking turmoil with SVB and others. The loss is coming as more investors, they're really buying into the odds of rate cuts from the Fed in 2024. Futures are now pricing in an 80% chance of a cut at the March meeting and nearly 100% in May. Let's discuss this further with Annika Trion, Chief Economist at Van Schlott Kemp. And Annika, good morning. Thank you for being here. Good morning. So every time you come to us, you talk about your investor manifesto. One of the key points in your manifesto is to stay focused. But is it possible that investors are just a bit too focused on the Fed and not focused enough on finding the companies that will be the big winners in 2024? Definitely, Frank. And actually, I think that, you know, for all economists out there, it's Christmas. You know, let's put a smile on our face. Let's be humbled. Let's stop being so cynical about the economy, about, you know, how surprising it is that the economic growth is better than expected. And let's embrace what's going on. Let's let's look at real cash flows of, of businesses and focus on that instead of focusing on how hard um, Powell sneezed yesterday. <laughs> That's certainly one way to put it. Um, I do want to talk to you about the bond market for a bit. Yields at their lowest level. Um, in quite a while right now. How are you looking at the bond environment right now as far as investments? For a lot of the year, those yields were big competition for equities. Definitely. And I mean, we are going from one extreme to the other extreme. And when these extreme things happen, it's never a steady path. So we've come from an era of extraordinarily low yields. Um, we're catching up very fast towards a more normal environment. But in the month of November, We've not seen this kind of movement in yield since December 2008. And we all know what happened in December 2008. So having an investment strategy that's hinging on the direction of yields, especially incrementally, it's extremely dangerous. What we do is we say it's very simple. The cost of capital for running a business is now more normal compared to an abnormal situation 12 years ago. Uh, for, the, for the last 12 years. And um, we have to get accustomed to that and make sure that businesses can generate cash flow in a more normal cost of capital. You know, speaking of things being a bit abnormal, I do want to ask you about zero trade options. Um, we saw a lot of the indices break win streaks yesterday. A lot of people are saying that either zero trade options were the primary reason or a factor in the declines in the market yesterday. What's your take on zero take options? Is that something that, you, that you're looking at closely when you're talking to clients and also Keep it in mind when you're positioning. Yes, we don't have a very strong view on zero trade options specifically. But I think given the extreme amount of volatility, I mean, bonds are supposed to be the safe asset class that don't move much, a little bit boring, um, don't need to pay too much attention. There's extraordinary movements there. You know, having nine consecutive days of very, very strong equity markets, suddenly things break while they're bound to. 
So we're less looking at these intraday or intraday moves and looking more about which era are we exiting, which era are we entering, and how to position. All right, Anna Katrian, always great to see you. Have a great day. Thanks. All right, time now for a check on some of this morning's top corporate stories. Our Silvana Hanau is here with those. Silvana, good morning. Hi, Frank. Good morning to you. Well, Warner Brothers is now positioning itself as a possible tie-up partner with Paramount Global. Sources tell CNBC Warner CEO David Sasloff met this week with Paramount Chief Bob Backish and expressed interest in a possible merger between their two companies. The meeting, which took place Tuesday at Paramount's Midtown Manhattan headquarters, reportedly lasted several hours and covered a wide range of partnership ideas, including how a merger of their streaming service, Paramount Plus and Max, could better rival Disney Plus and Netflix. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is reportedly discussing raising tariffs on some Chinese goods, including electric vehicles, and a move to boost the U.S. clean energy sector. The report follows a request to the administration by a bipartisan group of U.S. lawmakers last month to hike tariffs on Chinese-made vehicles and investigate ways to prevent Chinese firms from exporting to the United States from Mexico. Chinese automobiles currently face a 25% import levy into the U.S. And Apple has lost its attempt to delay an impending Apple Watch import ban. That's according to an International Trade Commission filing. Now, nothing short of intervention from the White House can stop the ban from going into full effect Christmas Day on its Series 9 and Ultra 2 watches. Separately, Bloomberg reports Apple is ramping up production of its Vision Pro mixed reality headset for a possible February launch, sending an email to developers yesterday to, quote, get ready by testing apps and sending them back to Apple for feedback, Frank. Uh, Big story there. Of course, Apple has such a big influence on the market. Traded lower yesterday on this news. We're going to continue to watch that story. Silvana, we'll see you later in the show. See you later, Frank. Thank you. All right, coming up, we got a lot more ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors have to know today. But first, getting set for Nike results after the close today, we lay out the the number one number to watch and speak with one investor that's long on the stock. Plus, we're tracking the 2023 defense stock surge and speak with one CEO at the forefront of that industry. And then later, a New Jersey judge writes the final chapter in what was one of the wildest stories of financial fraud in recent memory. A very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline. Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work.
And welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Take a look at futures right now. We're looking at the Dow looking like it would open up 170 points higher right now in the pre-market. As always, we say it's early. But the Nasdaq, really the big gainer in the pre-market, up almost three quarters of 1% right now. Seeing some big gains after those Micron results. We're going to talk a lot more about tech, the Nasdaq, the markets in general. Also, zero trade options just a little bit later in the show. Also coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, we have an exclusive one-on-one with Carrie Smith. The CEO of defense technology giant Parsons. We're going to get her take on what's been a very busy year for her sector and also her outlook for 2024. Stay with us. Canva presents unexplained appearances. It was an ordinary workday until... That presentation appeared out of thin air. Also, it's eerily on brand. Wait, did that agenda just write itself? Words appear, making this unexplainable case... Unexplainable? It's Canva's AI tools. I can generate slides and words in seconds. Really? The real mystery is why I'm only learning this now. Canva.com. Designed for work. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. The need for defense and improved critical infrastructure becoming increasingly prevalent as the U.S. and its allies continue to face international and domestic security threats. The latest, the leader of Hamas reportedly visiting Egypt for the first time in more than a month to discuss another potential ceasefire in Gaza as that war drags into its third month. This is the U.S. announces a new naval task force in response to growing threats in the Red Sea. A key part of this story, technology solutions as a way to tackle some of the world's biggest challenges. One name with a big presence in that space, Parsons, a leading technology provider in the national security and global infrastructure markets. Shares trading very close to an all-time high, up nearly 35% year-to-date, And this week, announcing a new $250 million classified contract with the U.S. government. Parsons gets just over half of total revenue from government contracts like these. Joining me now in a CNBC exclusive is Parsons CEO, President and Chairwoman Carrie Smith. Carrie, good morning. Thank you for being here in studio. Thank you for having me, Frank. All right. Great to hear. uh, Have you here. So we just talked about some of the stock rally uh, that you've seen so far year to date. Stocks also up double digits since your last earnings, where you saw more than 20 percent revenue growth. We laid out some of the geopolitical issues out there, just some of them. We can add China tensions to that list. Give us a sense. What's going on with your business? What's the biggest tailwind for your business? And what's your outlook for 2024 when it comes to the geopolitical landscape? Yeah, first, I would say our business very well aligned with geopolitical priorities, whether that's on the federal side of the house and focused on national security or whether it's on the critical infrastructure side of the house where there's global investment taking place worldwide. We're focused on six end markets, and those end markets are growing at rates between 5 to 12 percent compound annual growth rate. All right. So we're going to show the audience some of your end markets in just a minute. Uh, I want to get to the news that you had this week, that $250 million classified contract. So you can't tell us what it is. It's classified. Understood. Um, I also cover Palantir, a company somewhat similar to yours. Um, CEO Alex Karp is always telling me he's seeing a sharp uptick in demand when geopolitical events happen, specifically from the Israel-Hamas war. Have you seen an uptick in business? Um, I know you do a lot of business in the Middle East, but tied directly to that conflict. Yes, so from a broader level, we support the intelligence community in the Department of Defense in cybersecurity, space, and missile defense. So relative to Israel, Hamas, those areas are going to see increased demand, as well as with the Russia-Ukraine conflict. I know you also have a large business tied to China. So we've seen a lot of China tensions. We saw President Xi come visit the U.S. Um, Give us a sense, when it comes to the China tensions, how big of a concern is that for your customers um, and also your partners? So in the national defense strategy, it's clearly a focus on the near-peer threat. 
And when you look at the budget, um, the research development test and evaluation budget is going to be going up by 4% in the FY24. There is a focus directly aligned with the Parsons portfolio when you think about cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, again, space, missile defense. So it's really how do we position as we've moved from a fight that was counterterrorism focused to one that's near peer threat. I want to ask you a direct question. Are the tensions easing? Are they getting worse? When you're talking to your clients, are they becoming more concerned or less concerned? So I would definitely say it's more concerned. More concerned. So is there anything in particular that they're concerned about? Is it trade? Is it military conflict? Is there certain uh, any part of the China tensions that are especially an issue for your customers right now? So I think we just need to stay ahead and keep our technological edge, and that's where Parsons is focused. So areas like artificial intelligence, how do we make sure that we're applying that to every sense of the mission? Whether it's areas like counter unmanned air systems, where you're trying to identify, detect, and track an unmanned aircraft vehicle. Whether it's cybersecurity, where you're trying to use artificial intelligence to predict an adversary's next move. It's really critical on technology that we stay in the leading edge as a nation. You know, you just mentioned something. I think we're trying to figure out whether it comes to defense or the enterprise. How is AI going to impact specifically your business? Um, right now, it's used mostly in predictive capabilities, but are there other ways going forward, maybe even in just in 2024, that you're going to use it in a different way? Yes, so Parsons has been involved in artificial intelligence for over two decades, and I would say it's ingrained in almost every program that we have. We have 100 contracts with embedded AI. We also have 30 internal use cases that we're using. Examples, again, are how do you predict a cyber adversary's next move? How do you look at a printed electronic circuit board and determine if there's been tampering? How do you use it for counter unmanned air systems? And then on the infrastructure side of the house, we're using it for traffic flow predictability. How do you find out if there's an incident? How do you reroute traffic? We also use it for energy, for cyber monitoring and compliance, as well as load forecasting. All right. I don't want to just focus on tensions. That's been the majority of this interview. Um, opportunity as well. You're a beneficiary of the $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill. Also in a boost in infrastructure spending in the Middle East, you actually work very closely with Saudi Arabia on a number of their projects, including uh, the kingdom's new financial district. And also, I don't even know how to describe it. It's called NEOM. It's, it's infrastructure, it's commerce, it's everything involved. So give us a sense in the U.S. and also globally, the infrastructure picture, and, and how do you see that spending rolling out? Yes, yeah, so the U.S. bill was passed in November 2021. As you mentioned, it was $1.2 trillion. Out of that, $550 billion is new funds. And it directly aligns to our portfolio because the majority goes towards transportation. How do we improve roads and highways, bridges, tunnels, uh, our airports, our ports, our rail and transit systems? Also, environmental remediation is important. And we expect that funding to peak around the 2027 timeframe to have really? a six to eight year tail after that. The Middle East is also very exciting because they have $1.5 trillion of spend, with near more than half of that going into Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia established Saudi Vision 2030, and they set up giga projects for how do they diversify their economy away from oil. So one of those is called Knee on the Line, an exciting project for which we're one of the integrated project uh, delivery managers. It's going to be a city basically as tall as the Empire State Building, as long as Long Island, run on 100% renewable energy. Wow. I mean, talk about infrastructure. Carrie Smith, it is so great to have you here. Hoping to have you back. Thank you again. Thank you very much, Frank. All right. Coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, Cities Jane Frazier reportedly looking to take the axe to another key banking business. Worldwide Exchange will be back right after this. It is around 5.30 a.m. in the New York City area, and there's a lot more ahead here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. 
bouncing back. Investors hoping yesterday's steep sell-off was a one-time event that saw the Dow snap a nine-session losing streak. We are also breaking out your 2024 stock playbook. We, re- we recap what has really been a wild year for the banking sector and what's on tap for the year ahead. Plus, taking on swipe fees, how a new bipartisan bill is siding with retailers much to the dismay of credit card companies. It's, December, it's Thursday, December 21st, 2023. You are watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. I am Frank Holland. Let's get you ready to start your day. As always, you pick up the half an hour with the check on U.S. stock futures and take a look at what we're seeing right here in the green across the board. The Dow very slightly off of its highs of earlier this morning. Similar story for the Nasdaq, but you can see all three indices solidly in the green. So this, after a rough day for the major averages that saw the Dow and the Nasdaq snap their nine-session win streaks for their worst day since October. It was even worse for the broader S&P closing down nearly 1.5% for its worst day since late September. Sharp declines in the small caps and the transports as well. You can see the Russell 2000 down almost 2%. Dow transports down 2 and one percent So just a red day for the markets in general. In the bond market, a sell-off on Wall Street really doing nothing to help with Treasury yields. With the 10-year right now trading at its lowest level since July, right now at 3.88. All right, that's your morning money set up. Now it's time we're checking some of your morning's top corporate stories, and it is Silvana Hanau. Back with those. Silvana, good morning again. I'm back on this Thursday morning, Frank. Good morning. Well, a Wells Fargo branch in Albuquerque, New Mexico, just made history. Workers there voting five to three in favor of unionization, marking the first such vote and victory at a major U.S. bank. The Wall Street Journal adds that a Wells branch in Bethel, Alaska, is also set to vote on unionization this week. And two more in Florida and California have filed petitions for union elections. Sources tell CNBC Citigroup is getting set to close its distressed debt business as the latest part of CEO Jane Frazier's overhaul. The move follows Citi's announcement last week that it will close its municipal bond group by the end of March. Both are part of what's known internally at Citi as Project Bora Bora, involving a job cut at, of, job cut of at least 10% across the bank's major businesses. And the owner who orchestrated a scheme that inflated the value of his small New Jersey deli to more than $100 million has pleaded guilty to fraud. James Patton admitted as much before a U.S. district judge yesterday and was one of three men charged in 2022 over artificially inflating the value of the company Hometown International, which which only asset was your hometown deli in Paulsboro, New Jersey. And I remember that story very well, Frank. Yeah, I remember that story as well. I was thinking, how good are these sandwiches? Yeah, but <laughs> right. <laughs> but turned out to be fraud. Uh, yeah. A little disappointing because it was kind of it was almost kind of a heartwarming. Story. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, we'll continue to follow that story and others. Silvana, thank you very much. All right. It was a tale of two halves this year for the banks and financials, the sector coming under extreme pressure in the first half from rising rates and the collapse of SVB, Signature Bank and First Republic. Bank stocks have come back since since on the prospect of the Fed cutting rates, but there are still several challenges ahead. Our Leslie Picker looks at the issues banks could face in 2024. 
Financials have been buoyed by the decline in rates over the last month, but the sector is poised to face some choppiness in 2024, depending on the trajectory of several macro factors. A soft landing would come as a relief for investment managers and banks alike if it were to mitigate the risk of substantial losses. But a new note by J.P. Morgan advises caution about the second half, particularly for bank stocks, if consumption slows and the earnings tailwind peters off, especially against the backdrop of more pressure in credit quality and commercial real estate. While lower rates could provide a boost to loan activity, they could also jumpstart more M&A, buyout, and IPO activity, which has been tepid over the last few years. Advisors tell me there's tremendous pent-up demand for deal-making, but the current environment of high multiples and high rates are just not conducive. They're hoping for a big shift in 2024, but of course there's no guarantee they'll see a meaningful difference. And lastly, regulation is in full focus as the banks battle the proposed capital rules that would require more buffers on the biggest balance sheets. And a more aggressive antitrust administration has created somewhat of a deterrence effect on would-be deals. How that might change an election year, of course, is a big question in the merger ecosystem. Frank? All right. Big thanks to our Leslie Picker. Let's talk more about what lies ahead for the banking sector in 2024. Here in the House, Chris McGrady, he's the head of U.S. Bank Research at KBW. Chris, it's really great to have you here. Thank you very much. Um, I think it's just logical. Let's pick it up where Leslie left it off. Regulation in the banks, increasing capital requirements and all this happening during an election year. Give us a sense. How do you see that playing out? Right. 2024 has got a lot of uh, themes that are really uncertain. Right. 2023 was about interest rates, solvency, uh, earnings revisions. Uh, That is largely stabilized. Um, For 2024, we we also have to talk about credit quality. We have to talk about the effects, the full effects of interest rates and obviously an election. All right. Rates were the other big story when it came to SVB and just the banking sector in general last year. So this week we had Goldman on. They were forecasting five quarter point cuts next year. What's your outlook for rate cuts, um, and how does it impact the banking sector? Right. We're not, we're not at five. We're at two. We think higher for longer is the more likely scenario. If you listen to the Fed, they've all talked about rates staying higher, inflation needing to come down further. Um, but the futures market is certainly, after the FOMC last week, moved to a five to six cuts next year. Um, we have to ask ourselves the question is, why are they going to cut that aggressively? If inflation does get to 2% and we do get the stick, we stick the landing on, on inflation, that would be good. But if we see a weakening in the economy and five to six cut is because of um, cyclical weakness, I think the banks are a tough spot. You know, everybody wants the cuts, but nobody wants the economy to soften. Um, I want to talk something else that's really important for banks, especially our biggest banks. Um, The IPO, the M&A market. um, Oddly enough, we have a big M&A story today. Uh, Obviously, two big media companies at least considering it. How important is that specifically for investors to see a pickup in IPOs, a pickup in M&A, just more activity for the banks that's higher margin? It's psychology, right? Investment banking in particular has been in a recessionary environment for the better part of two years. So closed capital markets, closed IPOs, IPOs that haven't traded great has all impacted sentiment. We think the pieces um, are in place for that to reopen. Interest rates coming down is certainly a component of that. As we as we know what the terminal rate of rates are, I think that'll help. So does that does the idea that the IPO market's going to uh, reaccelerate? I guess from almost a dead stop right now. Um, does that make the banking sector and financials more attractive for investors? Parts of it, right? Yeah. If you go up cap, you go the, the big money center banks, companies like Goldman and Morgan Stanley, they will certainly benefit from it. I think more broadly, rate certainty for the commercial traditional bank is really important for 24. One other thing for 2024, a lot of people are talking about all the money sitting on the sidelines and money market funds, high yield savings accounts. I think it's $5.9 trillion. 
How does that impact the banks? If that money moves into the markets or if it sits there? I mean, what do you see happening with all that cash? Right. For 2023, we've seen since SVB a lot of money um, chasing yield. All right. And that's come out of the banks. We've seen drain as as QT has happened. Um, I think for 2024, if we have seen terminal rates and rates do come down, you know, that is pushing investors back into the equities. All right. Back to the investor focus. What should people buy for 2024? Do you have a top pick? Give us a sense of what your top pick is and why. Sure, I would say three themes. Uh, capital markets, we talked about that, reopening. We want to own banks that are going to grow tangible book value. There's a historically a great correlation between tangible book. Companies like East West Bank, uh, Key Corp is going to rebound and, and grow their tangible book. And then finally, banks where we think the earnings power is not uh, represented in the current valuation. So the valuations, Frank, are really clustered in the banks. And so you can buy the same um, you can pay the same earnings multiple for a bank with significantly more earnings power, and that's where right. we're looking at. All right, Chris McGrady, always great to have you here. I'm going to start calling you C-Mac, man. You're our MVP. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks, Frank. All right, so we're getting ready for another very key earnings report today. It's Nike. The stock's up almost 30% since its last report three months ago, far outpacing the broader retail sector as tracked by the Spider Retail ETF. But it's still sitting more than 7% away from its most recent 52-week high hit all the way back in February. CNBC.com retail reporter Gabrielle Von Rouge has the setup and the number one thing to watch ahead of the tape. If there's one key thing to focus on in Nike's earnings release this afternoon, it's margins. For the last six quarters, Nike's gross margin was down compared to the prior year. And investors are eager to see that turn around. There are a couple things that are working in Nike's favor. Like other retailers, freight costs have been weighing on Nike's profits. But over the last couple of quarters, those costs have come down across the industry, which has proven to be a boon for margins. Nike's inventories are also in a much healthier position. During Q1, inventories fell 10%. That means less markdowns and potentially the beginning of Nike's margin recovery. Still, a lot of this is going to come down to the macro. Consumers right now are under pressure, they're hungry for a deal, and it's been tough to convince them to pay the full price. And as always with Nike, China will have its own part to play here. China is Nike's most profitable region. But so far, China's economic recovery has been a mixed bag. If China's top line is soft, it could be a drag on Nike's margins. Frank? All right, big thank you to Gabby Von Rouge for that. Joining me now with much more is Nike shareholder and founder and president at YCG Funds, Brian Yakman. Brian, good morning. Great to have you. Good morning. Great to have you. All right, so you're a big Nike shareholder. It's about 2% of total assets for you. What are you expecting from this report? Well, I, I agree with the most recent comments that the number one thing that we're trying to keep an eye on is margins, because what we're concerned about in all of our portfolio is owning these global champions that have enduring pricing power. And so our biggest concern, and when I say pricing power, what I'm meaning by that is if you have identical competition come along and they produce something better, faster, and cheaper, so in the case of Nike, we're looking like Hoka and on, I want to know, do people still choose Nike at a premium price? And so we're, we're wanting to make sure that gross margins are able to recover uh, from the prior lows. All right. So you're talking discounting. Um, I got to be honest. I'm a big Nike person. I wear the sneakers a lot. When you go on the website right now, almost everything's on sale right now. How concerning is that going into this print? Well, I'm not going to lie. It, it is concerning uh, because, you know, we view Nike as a luxury business. Mm-hmm. And when you're luxury, you really got to balance that exclusivity and growth. And obviously what happened was they misread the tea leaves after COVID. They continued to push really heavily into DTC. They relied more or less on the wholesale channel. It led to this inventory glut. 
And so now we are worried about, you know, can they wean off that promotional pricing? Uh, because that's something that will damage the brand over long periods of time. So is this a short-term issue, or, or will they recover back to that premium pricing? You know, you're hitting on something a lot of analysts have talked about, um, just the fact that Nike's direct-to-consumer business has grown. I believe right now it's about 40% of total revenue. And I was very surprised. I, I looked this up, and I know you sent it to us as well. There's no one retailer, not even Foot Locker, that has like a house of Nike inside of it, accounts for more than 10% of sales. In the short term, it sounds like you're saying that's not a good thing. But long term, isn't that good for Nike to have this direct access to its customers and also all the data? Oh, no, no. It's, it's a wonderful thing. In fact, direct-to-consumer is far more profitable. The issue was is that they, they, they smartly tried to move away from the wholesale channel so they had more control over distribution, better, you know, faster execution, faster or better customization. But what happened is they pushed so heavy into it during COVID because they saw the DTC channel growing so much, they overdid it. And that led to the inventory glut. So now they've needed to return a little bit back to the wholesale channel, realizing that you know, you, you, you've got to just do okay. what, where, the, where the demand is. And they're right, finding so, that So good long everywhere. term, but putting a little pressure on margins right now because they have extra inventory. People also shifted spending from goods to services, another factor. You mentioned premium a couple of times. I want to talk to you about the Jordan brand. Um, very strong sales for the Jordan brand year to date. In fact, I believe back in June, uh, Nike was saying they think it's going to overtake the size of Adidas at some point next year. A lot of sales there, too. I'm a big Jordan person. By the way, anybody listen, I wear ones and threes. Um, but <laughs> are you concerned about the strength of the Jordan brand going forward? Because, I mean, if we're just going to be real, there's kind of oversaturation. Everywhere you look, somebody has a pair of Jordans on. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's the balance of exclusivity and growth. So, you know, I look at like Apple, for example. I think there is nobody that has been more successful and arguably the strongest global consumer brand and able to take a premium pricing to the mass market. And Nike is trying to follow the same the same playbook. But I, I'm I have to agree that you know this is something we're keeping our eye on because one of the things that we that really attracted us to Nike, if you look at the resale market. They sell these, these Jordan uh, shoes, and the top uh, 10 most expensive sneakers in the world ever sold all time in the resale market, 8 out of 10 are Nike. 18 out of the top 25 are Nike. That's pretty indicative that there's pricing power because they're selling their shoes. There's this limited exclusive distribution, and then the prices just skyrocket. Historically, just recently, about three months ago, that started to look a little bit shakier after decades of strength. Right. But what I don't know is, is that more a function of the consumer and the consumer having, you know, high inflation and losing real purchasing power? Okay. Um, or is this a long-term issue? And so we're keeping big an eye question. on it. It has rebounded. Yeah, a big bit. question there. Brian Yakman, great to see you. You didn't mention what your favorite Jordans are. We'll have to ask you next time you come on. But thank you very much for your <laughs> insight. Uh, Brian Yakman from YCG, big Nike shareholder. Thank you again. All right, coming up, the country that's tackling what's come to be known as shrinkflation and is now holding consumer goods makers' feet to the fire. We're going to have that story coming up. What was my ambition when I was starting out? Survival. I love the word ambition. Ambition is passion. It's a key ingredient of greatness. To me, ambition is being undaunted by the impossible. I'm ambitious for the nation. I'm ambitious for its people. I'm ambitious for my people. My ambition has always been to seek the truth. To learn as much as I possibly could. To make an impact. I believe in dreaming big. I always have. My ambition is to show gratitude. Yes. Ambition. <laughs> it's got America written all over it. 
Ambition really is the foundation of capitalism. I wanted to do great things in this country. My ambition is to do very well in business and to take those profits and recycle back in society to try to make the world a better place. Everything can be a reality. I see ambition everywhere. In many ways, ambition, human ambition, is what drives the world. And that ambition, it has to start somewhere. How about your global briefing? We're going to start with Toyota news. Shares slumping to an 18-month low after a safety scandal forced its subsidiary to recall 1 million cars here in the U.S. A raid by Japan's transport ministry revealing the carmaker has manipulated the results of collision safety tests since 1989. The vehicles being recalled include several Toyota and Lexus models made between 2020 and 2022. They have sensors that could potentially short circuit and cause the airbags not to deploy. In South Korea, companies that slim down products but charge the same amount or even more will reportedly be required to show the old sizes and the new sizes on packaging starting next year. The Wall Street Journal says the country is establishing a price investigation team to monitor changes in volume, but not price, of food items in response to growing concerns of shrinkflation. Items that have become noticeably smaller in recent months include beer, Vienna sausages, <laughs> and also flavored almonds. Dumplings in that list, too. Interesting. Vienna sausages. Uh, beyond, Boeing, excuse me, moving one step closer to resuming deliveries of the 737 MAX aircraft to China after winning a key clearance from the country's aviation regulator. The wind marking a potential easing of strained U.S.-China relations and a broader resumption of 737 MAX production. Individual aircraft deliveries to China have uh, been suspended since 2019 following two deadly crashes. All right, banks and retailers, they've been at odds for years over those 2 and 3% swipe fees credit card companies charge every single time that you make a purchase. But now a group of lawmakers, they're taking the side of the retailers, much to the chagrin of Visa and the rest of the payment space. Our Emily Wilkins joins us now with much more on the story. Emily, good morning. It is great to see you. Good, good morning, Frank. Good to see you, too. Well, banks and retailers, it's the holiday season, and they're using it as the latest battle in this fight over the fees that come, as you said, every time you swipe your credit card. And at the center of this debate is a bipartisan bill that goes after two of the largest credit card networks, Visa and MasterCard. They make up about 70% of the market. Republican Senator Roger Marshall, one of the sponsors of the bill, said that more competition is going to mean smaller fees for retailers and hopefully more savings on holiday necessities. What our bill does is promote competition. We don't set a price quota, we promote competition and we let the bank that issues the card choose it. So the bank that issues the card has other choices out there besides Visa and MasterCard. But banks and credit card companies are warning that the bill could lead to the end of the point reward systems. A survey from IPX 1031 found that 45% of all travelers this holiday season will use points. And Richard Hunt, executive chairman of Electronic Payments Coalition, expects at least one big name to be using them for travel this year. Traveling during this holiday season will be so expensive, Santa Claus will be using his points to lower his cost of travel. Hunt questioned whether more competition would even be possible given the high level of investment and security needed for credit card networks. He suggested that the bill could lead to a race to the bottom. You have to invest billions of dollars as a credit card processing company to make sure the credit cards are safe and secure. You can't just give it to some Johnny-come-lately company that's out there. It has not proven that they can provide safety and security 
to your credit card, that you can have a peace of mind when you make a transaction. Marshall said he's hoping to get a vote on his legislation next year and possibly attach the measure to one of the larger must-pass spending bills that Congress is hoping to get done. Frank? So yesterday we saw Visa and MasterCard. They both closed lower. Market's lower, though, so it's hard to tell if this had an impact on it. But long term, um, how's this expected to uh, go through legislation in in D.C. right now? Are we expecting to see some major uh, bill be passed next year? I mean, Frank, it's a great question. Obviously, Congress has its work cut out for them. They have to fund the government. Uh, They have several very critical programs with national security that they have to do next year. Plus, they've got that uh, funding for Ukraine, Taiwan, uh, Israel, as well as border security. So a lot of things. And and look, lawmakers will always try to get their priorities attached to any one of these major must-pass bills. But the reality is that time is very short. Congress has a lot to do. Uh, Certainly, this bill is one that's been in the spotlight for these banks and retailers as they debate uh, these fees. But at the same point, it's just not clear that anything besides what absolutely has to get done will get done next year. You know, Emily, speaking of voting, I want to congratulate you on being elected as the 117th president of the National Press Club. Congratulations to you. I know it happened a while ago, but we haven't seen you. So congrats. Thank you so much, Frank. Hopefully the next time you're down in D.C., we can go to the club and grab a drink. Oh, sold. I got to find my way down there. Emily Wilkins, live in D.C. Great to see you. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, the one word that every investor needs to know today, plus a mega media merger reportedly in the works after a high-stakes luncheon in midtown Manhattan earlier this week. We're going to give you the full story. Plus, new hope of survival for the controversial European Super League. We're going to have that story and much more coming up after the break. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up. We begin with Warner Brothers positioning itself as a possible tie-up partner with Paramount Global. Sources tell CNBC. Warner CEO David Zaslav met this week with Paramount Chief Bob Backish and expressed interest in a possible merger between the two companies. The meeting, which took place Tuesday at Paramount's Midtown Manhattan headquarters, reportedly lasted several hours and covered a wide range of partnership ideas, including how a merger of their streaming services, Paramount Plus and Max, the better rival, Disney Plus and Netflix. The EU's top court calling FIFA and the UEFA's plans to stop the breakaway Super League contrary to EU law and an illegal monopoly for sports competition. The ruling paves the way for the Super League project and its goal to compete with the UEFA's Champions League. Apple losing its attempt to delay an impending import ban on Series 9 and Ultra 2 Apple Watches set to go in full effect on Christmas Day. This is the company reportedly ramps up production of its Vision Pro mixed reality headset for a potential launch in February. Shares of BlackBerry under some pressure this morning on a disappointing fourth quarter sales forecast. Still, BlackBerry did report revenue growth in its internet cybersecurity segments, along with improved margins and profitability. Those shares down right now over 7%. Different story for Micron. Shares getting a boost from its strong revenue forecast as data center demand offsets weakness in PC and smartphones. The chipmaker says demand for flash storage and memory should improve next year as supply returns to historically normal levels. Those shares up just about 5.5%. And be sure to catch CNBC's interview with Micron CEO Sanjay Marotra at 9 a.m. today. And more than 74,000 users on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, reporting issues with the site over the last 24 hours, according to monitoring website uh, down detector. 
Uh, around 70% of those reports noting issues with its mobile app, something we'll continue to watch. All right, turning our attention back to the markets. Markets looking to reverse some of yesterday's losses right now. Take a look at futures, however. We are seeing a reverse in the futures market. Looks like the Dow would open up about 150 points higher than NASDAQ strong as well on the back of those Micron earnings. Joining me now, Jay Woods, Chief Global Strategist at Freedom Capital Markets. Jay, good morning. Great to have you here. Good morning. Great to be here. All right, so saw a dip in the markets yesterday. A lot of people attributing that to zero-day options. I'm going to talk to you about that in a second. But we're seeing the futures rebound right now. With that in mind, what is your Wex word of the day? Well, my Wex word of the day is earmuffs. Uh, there's a lot of noise, and one of the trends we're going to see going into 2024 is, you know, follow trend lines, not headlines. And one of the things I say to my kids when I watch the Eagles, especially Monday night, <laughs> is, you know, put on your earmuffs. You want to block out that noise. You don't want to hear what that has to say. Uh, we've seen this election cycle before in 2016, 2024. Uh, 2020 and now 2024. Who knows what the headlines are going to be? It could cause for some angst, some volatility, interesting conversation. But as far as the market goes, I think the trends are strong. I think we will have a solid 10, 12 percent growth year uh, right. in the S&P 500. And uh, you just got to block out those noise, uh, that noise where the earmuffs. Jay Woods with a 2024 forecast. So I do want to ask you about zero day options. Mm -hmm. um, yesterday, a lot of people think it was either a factor or the main reason for the decline we saw yesterday, um, the break in the wind streak. How do you see that impacting the market for the rest of the year, maybe even today with lower trading, a lot of people on holiday how does that impact things? Well, I think the sell-off, you know, we, we can say, we can talk about zero-day options if you like, but I think yesterday, I mean, we were so overbought. Uh, the S&P 500 is on a seven-week winning streak. Uh, these things are great, but you're going to get a pullback, and when the pullback comes, it can get accelerated. Now, when we talk zero-day options, you want to watch the last 30 minutes of the day. Things tend to accelerate in one direction, given the momentum in the market. So I think this is something to watch. But to attribute yesterday the acceleration to just that factor, given the run-up we've had, I think that's a little premature. It's a little overblown in your mind. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yes. Um, normally, we're really focused on today right now. But actually, I want to ask you about something. Okay. Tomorrow. Does tomorrow start the Santa Claus rally if we're going to have one or is it the day after Christmas? Because a lot of a lot of differing opinions. This as a technician and when you study for the CMT exam, the Santa Claus rally is the last five trading days of the year, the first two trading days of the next year. So the Santa Claus rally officially starts on Friday and it will end the second day of January. And the good news about it, and this is more of a recency bias, but since my career started 1994, uh, we've had 24 times where we've rallied during that period. Uh, the markets finished higher 75% uh, of the time. Mm -hmm. The six times we didn't, we did finish lower the year four Got times. So. All right. So your pick for us today is Amazon. Um, pretty obvious reasons. One of the MAG7, you have a lot of confidence in it. What do you think about today? Very quickly, good day for the markets, bad day for the markets. What do you expect? I think we get a little bit of rebound, but it should be slow day. Uh, we'll see how it closes out. Wouldn't sh shock me to see another sell-off. All right, Jay Woods, we got to leave it there. Uh, thank you all for watching. As we mentioned, futures solidly in the green. You have a great day. Squawk Box coming up next. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.